Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, Professor David Alcott. Welcome to Arash's World. Wonderful being here. Thank you. Wonderful. Can you start off describing yourself? How would you describe yourself here briefly? And that's that's the toughest question. I promise the other questions will be easier as we go on. You know, uh, probably, and this probably says enormous about enormous amount about the work that I've done in my life is two features. Um, one is that I uh, always felt myself an outsider. I grew up in kind of rural California, the child of immigrants. Um, I was, it, it was a very, it was after the immigration that came from the, from the Appalachians and from the Midwest to California. So around me, basically people were very white and blonde and Christian. The guys were nice and tall and they could throw a spiral football and I was short and dark. Um, and Jewish, and my family was an immigrant family, and I wrote poetry instead of throwing a football. So you can imagine what my childhood, you know, was like feeling myself other in that context. The other thing I would say about myself is that um, I therefore, maybe therefore, always felt the need to change, and I became very uh, interested in how change occurs psychologically and then its impact so on society, on, on political sphere, on the economic sphere. And I think those two features are dominating, feeling other. And therefore, when you feel other, you have two options. One is you close yourself off and you isolate yourself. The other is you have to be very good at culturally understanding what's happening around you so that you can navigate it better because you don't quite belong. And I think I was on that side. So I had to develop a, a, a sensitive eye to what was going on around me. And then I was very interested in change. So all of my work from the very beginning, my, my very first research was done in Syria. And it was how people born as a shopkeeper Muslim in Aleppo or as a Druze in, in, in the mountains or as a, uh, a Shiite Alawi in Latakia, how, how you became a citizen of Syria after you never saw yourself that way. You saw yourself as part of the Turkish empire, or part of colonial France. Uh, and it went from there consistently I, I, to, you know, the day that the Russian, that the Soviet Union fell. If you were a civics teacher, what did you teach the next day in class? Did you teach czarist, Soviet? What, was, what could you do? So I, I became interested in that and then came to the realization that none of us are living into, in the world into which we were born. We are all living in a world that is you know, best expressed by rapid change, unexpected, ambiguous, ambivalent. Um, you don't quite know what's gonna happen and therefore you have to learn to maneuver in very different ways. So that, that's really, a funny way to talk about myself, but it directs where I went intellectually, uh, professionally in terms of my research and my teaching and consulting. It's brilliant because you just, uh, that was my life story there. I can completely I, relate to everything. Just uh, replace uh, football with soccer and we're there because I- It wasn't my place. It wasn't my place to say that, but I imagine that you too, if you're living in Canada, you were born in Iran, you traveled to get there, Similarly, you know, a similar story. And I think it's, it's, it's a, it is a more um, universal story than we imagine. Even those who are living within their own country who have been living for generations can still feel alienated, can still feel um, unmoored uh, by all the changes taking place. And I think that we have not come to grips with the emotional, spiritual, psychological, and therefore political and economic impact of that. Mm -hmm. I'd like to get into that, but just for me personally, the idea of patriotism does not make a lot of sense because there is not one country I would identify with. I mean, I, of course, I, I'm a Canadian and I, I love Canadian culture, but there's other cultures I enjoy too. It's For me, it's like food. Why limit yourself to one type of food and, and uh, accept all of them. So that's why that part, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of rootless and homeless, which is, has 
both uh, benefits as well as drawbacks. At the other, on the other side, also in terms of religion, I find myself identify with pretty much all of them, but I cannot commit to one. And that's why I like the idea of interfaith. That's something that I've been very fascinated with. Well, I'm not going to ask if you're married because obviously oh, yeah. that would good. Yeah. So at least there's some areas you're willing to commit. Oh yes. And, and to root yourself. <laughs> let me say though, let me let me let me respond to what you're saying <laughs> to understand this. Um, in the United States, about half the population does not have a passport. Unlike you, they can't imagine these other worlds. You are, it's not that you're unrooted, it's that you're a global citizen. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. We could drop you anywhere and you'd find your way. You'd find a way to be comfortable in that culture. You'd find your place. You'd find connection with other people and you'd be interested in other people and other cultures. It doesn't scare you. Mm-hmm. But I feel kind of like Zelik in Woody Allen's uh, film where you just adapt to them, but where's your own identity? And it's like mixes of different parts, but global citizen I like. I, yeah, I, but I'm, I'm gonna push back on this. And I'd say you're much more grounded than you imagine, but you're grounded in this global world. Mm-hmm. And the problem for us is that for many other people, um, they see you as a threat because they look at you and they say, wait a moment, what are you doing in my country? You're not authentically Canadian. I'm not authentically American. When I was a little kid, we have a song in America, my country, tis of the, it's, it was the American version of the God Save the King. So we had to have different words once we were independent. And it said, my country, tis of the land of liberty of the I sing land where my fathers died. And I remember being a little kid and saying to myself, wait, my fathers didn't die here. Mm. Nobody in my family died here. We're all, you know, my family's from Europe. My family came to this country. And I remember being really conscious, wow, that's not me. But for those people who don't have a passport, who look at you or look at me and say, but, 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 what do you mean all religions? I, I'm a Christian in America, or I'm a Muslim in Saudi Arabia or Indonesia, or I'm a Hindu in India, or I'm Jewish, I'm a Jew in Israel. I, you're complicating things for me. You're, you're taking away the clarity of my, of my culture, of my identity, and I'm going to resist you. I'm going to fight against you. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. And, and so let's, let's talk about your, your book, uh, Faith, Nationalism, and the Future of Liberal Democracy. And so it couldn't be more timely. I mean, this is exactly what we're going through. I myself uh, like to shy away from politics, but really after uh, Trump got elected, I felt that I, one has to take a stand. The, uh, well, you can't stay away. And everything as like, I think Michel uh, Foucault says, everything is political. And even if you don't take a stand, that is also political. So it's quite complicated, but let's, let's talk about your book. Sure. So uh, all the things that we've been talking about already is part of what motivated um, the book. Uh, in particular, once you reach adulthood, there are very few places where you come together with many other people with a similar interest. Granted, it could be a football game or it could be a hockey game or a baseball game. And you are certainly, you feel allegiance to your team. And when other people are up cheering, you're up cheering as well. But I wouldn't qualify that as kind of an intellectual, spiritual, or even political engagement. Although we do know in Europe, soccer fans can get quite quite, um, uh, violent. Um, But the only places where people come together in meaningful ways is in church, obviously mosque, temple, synagogue, but in a religious setting. And even though fewer people are going regularly to church than before, you, your identity, and I'm not talking about religious observance, your identity is, is grounded in a culture that includes what religion is. So for example, in the Scandinavian flags, the Swiss flags, what's the flag? What, what does it look like? You know? The, the Swiss one? Or the, the Scandinavian? Swiss or the, or, the, or the Swedish or the Norwegian or the D- Danish? They all have oh, the they, they have a cross. They have a cross. Yeah. And you say to yourself, on one hand, 
who, who cares? They don't even think of the cross in terms of it being a statement about Christianity. On the other hand, we know that that cross conquered the world, mm -hmm. that, that, that um, colonial forces would march into Latin America or into Africa or into Asia with that cross as, as the song went, onward Christian soldiers marching off to war with the cross of Jesus, mm -hmm. right? So it, it's true that few people may go to church and yet that symbol of identity is incredibly important. So if we're going to find a way to address the threats to liberal democracy, and I'll explain that in a second, then faith communities can be a, a, a wonderful resource. And so the book talks about faith communities developing a theology of democracy that it's not enough to say we want to help refugees or we want to help the poor. We actually have to show that, that our faith, our religion promotes the pluralism of a democratic system, which says, I believe what I believe. I believe it passionately, I'm committed to it, but I respect that there are alternatives. I respect that there are other views. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the, the framing of the book. The issue of democracy is for me more complicated when we look at a Putin or we look at an Orban in Hungary or we look at um, Netanyahu in Israel or Modi in India and we say, well, they're undemocratic. Mm -hmm. And I would argue, no, that's not what they are. It's a different understanding of what democracy is. When you and I were little kids, let's say in preschool, and the teacher would say, who wants to go outside and who wants to play indoors? How would you make a decision? The kids would raise their hands. I want to go outside or I want to see, and who wins? The majority. Mm -hmm. So there is an idea that of majority rule, an idea that the majority knows what's best. <laughs> well, that's, that majority, that's something I've struggled with because Hitler was democratically elected. And what exactly. if the majority is wrong? <laughs> exactly. So liberal democracies that developed after World War II in particular said democracy means the rule of the majority with rights for minority. In other words, the majority cannot, cannot deny the rights of others living within their country. And that held because we believed that it was all the same, meaning the majority would never want to oppress the minority, even though we have a long history of knowing they did. But after World War II, after seeing the horrible destruction, right? who would say that we should, we should attack minorities? And so we presumed that we could unify majority rule, minority rights, and kind of a shared culture where we can share our present and our future. And that lasted for a number of decades following the war. Even to almost the turn of the century with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and you had Francis Fukuyama calling for the end, saying he wrote about the end of history, that liberal democracy, which is dependent on capitalist society, was not just triumphant, it was the only way history will unfold. And from the time he wrote that, it's been downhill ever since. Mm -hmm. um, we did not expect this, but what happened was we began splitting. Some called for majority rule and said, that's all we need to know. Others said, no, 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 we are all about minority rights. So the right of trans in, in the United States, for example, the right of trans children, which represents a fraction of a fraction mm -hmm. of the population, becomes the most important thing for those who are supporting trans rights. And, and it's not that I don't support trans rights, but the overwhelming majority is saying, wait a moment, like a guy is a guy, a girl is a girl, you're, you're, you're mixing us all up. Or I'm a Muslim, I have the right to practice, not only to practice, but I have a right to wear hijab if I'm a woman. I have a right to live by the customs of my culture and what happened in France, although, um, uh, Marine Le Pen was not elected, but almost 42% of the population the voters supported her. And they said, wait a moment, if you're in France, you better live by French culture. You have no right to come here and think you can impose your Muslim culture on us, right? So we had a pushback there and suddenly 
the very notion of democracy itself is under attack. And so the book both tries to present the tensions about democracy, it tries to honor the concerns of those who feel themselves terribly threatened by the globalism that you and I, in which you and I feel comfortable, and yet will come around to say, wait a moment, we can't really live this way. We can't really live with the oppression of minorities. We can't live with the attacks on those who, who are in our, in our minds not authentic enough to be real citizens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's like, it seems like um, what it is, it's not so much democracy versus autocracy. It's more like, do you, there are certain rules in the, in the guidebook that you need to follow. So when you're playing a game, you both agree, these are the rules and I will not do that. And what we're leading towards is it's anarchy. And it's not really politically lined either way. I think it can be both sides. And what makes it more complicated is that we have uh, the, the idea of uh, freedom of speech and censorship. And it could be taken by both sides and on either side of the political spectrum. And it becomes more complicated because those who say, who are talking about freedom of speech are the ones who are curtailing it at the same time and taking it away. So it seems like we're in an Orwellian world where we double speak and, and different meanings and so on. But I think I, I remember uh, in seen in, uh, in the uh, um, Grand Illusion by Jean Renoir where, um, um, uh, where they're saying, this is the last gentleman's war. And right now, like it basically, it's just chaos, anarchy. And I'm actually, uh, I, I'm scared of that. I find yeah. that frightening. You, you have good reason to be scared. Um, so if I say, wait, you need to protect my right to be Jewish, even though that's under 2% of the population, mm -hmm. you have to respect my right to be Jewish mm -hmm. and you have to allow whatever. And then wait, I'm Sikh or I'm Buddhist or I'm Hindu or I'm Muslim, right? You have to respect my rights or I'm trans or I'm gay or I'm lesbian, right? Or I'm black or I'm right. It's not a surprise at some point that the white plurality in America will say, wait a moment. Okay, you have to present my rights too, because my rights feel threatened as well. And we in some ways created a culture in which victimhood became value, the more I can claim victimhood. So I have to say, for example, in my with my students, if I try to talk about poor whites, what uh, there's a book called White Trash that claims there's been this underclass where my students rebel. They say, why? Because you can take a white trash, wash his face, put on a suit and tie and he can go anywhere. And if I'm black or I'm Latino or I'm gay, right? I can't, but that's not true. We know that because we have many and many generations of white trash that can't seem to get out of their circumstances. I'm not saying, I, I don't wanna compare victimhood. I'm only saying it's not a surprise that you're having rebellion mm -hmm. from, that, from that crowd. And by the way, I have to tell you, I've been, I've been um, dealing with uh, a lot of people from Saskatchewan. Oh. And guess what? They talk the same way. Right? Mm -hmm. They think the coast of Canada, Vancouver, Toronto, you know, Montreal, why are they making these, these demands on multiculturalism? We're good Midwesterners, we're farmer, we're, why? We know who we are. So it's, and, and of course, it's the same in India, and it's the same in, in Jerusalem, and it's the same in Indonesia, and it's the same in Myanmar. Right, we know who we are. We're the majority. We we have our rights. This is our culture. We need to protect our culture. And absolutely true. And I think we, we really need to listen without prejudice, without stereotype threats. I mean, when when you see a, a, a white person, there's that stereotype stereotype threat uh, that says, okay, well, potentially racist or privileged, and and so on. Whereas the, the the black person also has to deal with it, and and people from other ethnic groups. And so I, I think it's like you cannot have a, a, a free and uh, a relaxed conversation without that being in the background of your mind, especially because the media is, is constantly talking about that. That's really in the foreground. And I think what, what's happening to, and we talked about identity, 
people want to identify with something that uh, makes them feel good, but then it goes to more and more extremist uh, um, parts so we have more polarization because uh, in order to appear not racist, you try to take an extreme position and others in order to protect their culture, as you're saying, they go the other way. And that's why we have movements from the far right and the far left. And I just say, you know, let's, let's find a common ground there because there are lots of things that people have in common. Well, look, let, let me, I'll push back a little bit. I, 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 fundamentally, I agree. I've spent a lot of my life uh, trying to, to build bridges. I, a lot of my research was in, in a right-wing evangelical Christian born again, you know, communities in the rural South, uh, in very conservative Catholic churches. So it's not that I don't see this, but I wanna push back a little bit on this. Um, if we're gonna make it in the world and increasingly um, homogenized in a sense, our countries are looking less and less like, well, I know exactly what a Swede looks like. I know exactly, right, that, that we've got to find ways to accommodate a more pluralist culture. We have to find a way. And it's, that's not the problem of the left. The left is, is already there. They believe in that. Mm -hmm. sure. It is the problem of the right. And, and the difference, let me, let me tell you that the difference, whether it's in India with Hindutva, which is the Hindutva, which is the ideology of, of, of Hindu triumphalism, or whether it's um, in, within the Islamic world, the sense that ultimately the world will be, will be Muslim. Uh, and in our world, in Canada and the United States, these countries were founded by pilgrims, by, by Christian refugees looking for a home for their Christianity. And that Christianity became when you read, for example, let's use the United States, when you look at the Mayflower Compact, when you look at the early speeches, they talk about America being the new Israel. They talk about America being divinely sanctioned, right? And yes, it will allow for diversity because there were diverse Christian groups, but fundamentally, the, the names of cities are all biblical names, mm -hmm. right? And the belief was that we, we in America, this is the new Israel that is covenantally blessed by God. And that covenant means that we need to keep this country pure. And now let me respond to what about purity? Well, two men making love with each other, that is an impurity. Hmm. Now, maybe I can accept what they do privately in their bedroom, but now you want the state to sanction, to sacralize, Right to make to make gay marriage a a um, almost like a secular sacrament, right, of the United States, that um, the that the role of women and the role of men, which is very clearly defined in our culture, is now going to be messed up, and men acting as women and women acting as men, and promiscuous sex and giving out condoms, all of this is an impurity. It actually is undermining God's grace. It's undermining God's promise of, our, of protecting us because we are covenantally committed to the purity of the nation. So ironically, corruption isn't about political corruption or lying, right? About taking money. Corruption is about undermining the integrity, the of America, the godliness of America, which means God will evaporate. God will leave this country and this country will be damned. That explains a really interesting phenomenon for us. In the Bible, listen carefully to this. In the Bible, the glorious king is King David. King David was an adulterer. King David was a murderer. King David was a blasphemer. King David did all of these horrible things, but according to the tradition, the Messiah descends from King David, from all that impurity. Now think about Donald Trump, right? Mm -hmm. All those impurities in Donald Trump, and yet 
he could be messianic because he's trying to bring back God's grace to America, right? It's an ironic, you say to yourself, how could evangelical, conservative evangelicals support somebody? If my kid came home and said, oh, I just, uh, I, I won't use the language to talk about a woman's anatomy. And then I just had sex with her. If I were the father of my 16 or 17 year, what would I do? I'd lock him up, right? I'd punish him. But he said, but I'm just being like the president. But, right? but, so so yeah. there's, this, there's this strange sense of purity on one hand, and yet accepting a Donald Trump as a messianic figure. And that's why this adulation of Donald Trump seems so strange. And we could say of a Putin or of a Netanyahu, of a Modi, and it's, it's around the world. Um, we, we see this adulation of, of these more authoritarian figures because we believe that somehow they will bring back the glory of our of our nation. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it puts things really into perspective. But for me, I, I'm fascinated by Jesus Christ. And if you look at and that's a common denominator across various religions. And if we can really like look at what he's saying and understand what he's saying, and he's he's hanging out with prostitutes and children and lepers and so on. So it's and he, he's not that authority, that king that comes in like majestically. He comes on a donkey uh, into the city and he's he's a rebel. And he is, for me, is in my view, how I see it, is is is, is a Marxist in, in in many ways as well because of his acceptance of everyone. And I think that's it. I mean, freedom. If you want to live your life that way, that's fine. When we talk about freedom, but then we say no, you can't do this, then we're taking away their freedom. However, there's a caveat there. I think when it comes to censorship, and there are certain things that I think it's just so bizarre, like uh, uh, um, deniers of climate change and even worse, Holocaust deniers, that I think you have to be also responsible because your freedom comes with responsibility, uh, individual and social responsibility of what you're saying. To say that the uh, Sandy Hook uh, massacre was, was staged is just horrendous. I mean, there is, uh, you can't, you shouldn't be able to say that. It's, wait, 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 wait. So who's yeah. going to censor? Who's going to make the decision? That is what that, that is difficult. Play? Yes, but one oneself, I think, our own like individual that that accord, the gentleman's accord or gentlewoman's accord of saying, okay, I will be responsible. Yeah, that's over. So now, what are you going to do? No, I guess we have to, um, and that, that's that's the danger there because then you might be led towards authoritarian figures to to instill that rule of law. And no, it, it's we're there. Yeah. What's happening now? What are you going to do? Well, Twitter may be so, shortly owned by Elon Musk as a private purchase, mm -hmm. so I guess he can make the decisions on what's going to be true or false, mm -hmm. and and. You know, Facebook can make the decisions of what's going to be true and false. Then as, as a Christian and a various religion, what would Jesus Christ do and be led by that? <laughs> well, yeah, but, but Jesus Christ uh, also overturned the tables in the temple mm -hmm. and throughout the money lenders. You know, he, he said that, that, you know, he, he, he wasn't only, you know, did you see the movie, The, the Passion of the Christ? Mm -hmm. Yes. So you remember that last scene? The last scene was Jesus rising, mm -hmm. a triumphant martial arts, ready to battle Jesus coming out. Okay. So I, I appreciate your read of Jesus, but not everybody reads Jesus that way. Yeah. Right? Not everybody reads Moses that way. Not everybody reads Buddha. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Siddhartha Buddha, right, was was all believing in, in, in uh, peace and in loving, right? And yet look at what's happening in Myanmar. As the Buddhists are genocidally attacking Rohingya and fighting now ethnic groups throughout the country in a, in a, in a most you know, uh, dictatorial, vicious fashion. So, what we're finding is, that's why I'll go back to how I began by saying, I'm 
calling for religious leaders to create theologies of democracy in the authentic language of their own tradition. So I can give you an explanation of what that is. When we think about idolatry in the Bible, idolatry in the Bible is not about a physical form. That's, that's easy. Idolatry is saying that I know God. You know, I know God. I know God's will. That's idolatry. That's heresy within, within for example, Jewish tradition. That's heresy to say that. We, because it's saying that I am therefore God, because I know God. So therefore, all I can say is, I know pieces, and I honor those pieces. I believe those pieces. I'll live my life on those pieces. But I have to accept that others may have other pieces of God's will, of God's presence, of God's word that I don't have. And I think that that is, is we, every religious group needs to be able to develop that. And it, it's not it's not crazy. Christianity has has had a historically has been able to have a modesty. Um, Islam has been able to have a modesty. There's a real concern about about claiming absolute knowledge of God. Mm -hmm. So I would say the antidote isn't to try to say, well, Jesus is really this, but rather to say there may be many Jesus, but you know, or, or maybe to say it differently, if God, if the God, if I hear that God says that I should murder others in the name of God, that I should wipe out other civilizations in the name of God, don't give up on God, give up on those who say that and create an alternative. And right now, right-wing religion sounds more authentic than a democratic religion, democratic voices in religion. And that's why I think we have to work hard to be able to show how fundamental um, modest belief is and democratic acceptance of, of others within our society is. And also not falling into the trap of conformity. So you have this view, uh, so the American view or the evangelical view of Christianity and, and everybody kind of follows it without standing up, without questioning. And that's something I've been, so that's what I like about, about Jesus where he's a rebel and he turns over those tables. I would do that too, because I was like, wait, this is not right. I mean, you say it's right, but it doesn't mean it makes it right. And I have my own way of seeing things and that should be respected as well. But because it's working like a cult, that's being suppressed and people are afraid of, of, even though they disagree with it, they're afraid of speaking up because they will get punished for, for, for doing so. Well, let me ask a question. <laughs> so if, if you're all right with Jesus overturning tables, yeah. how are you about blocking an abortion clinic or trying to invade an abortion clinic and you know, overturn the desks and the and the equipment and the operating table. It depends on the cause, though. I mean, that's not that's not the same. <laughs> Why not? You're saving lives. Well, yeah. So, so I, I again, I'm pushing back mm -hmm. a bit to mm -hmm. say I don't want to make this easy. This is mm -hmm. incredibly, incredibly complicated. I think it is possible to oppose abortion. Uh, but you have to do it within the democratic system, which means you have to convince enough people of the truth of your view. And if you eventually finally do that, then I may have to accept, I'll find alternatives, but I may have to accept. It's being judgmental and I, I'm not that. I, it's only when I see things like taken away, that's when I take judgment. When people take away people's rights or people are racist against that, that's when I will stand up. But if you want to live your own life, anyhow you like, uh, you I, don't believe, I'm okay with you don't, that. But you don't believe that. For example, you said people shouldn't be allowed to promote falsehoods that actually are dangerous by saying that COVID isn't really a disease, don't get vaccinated. You you don't you're you would oppose that yeah right so you're not as accepting as you make yourself sound that's true I I I'm I'm <clears throat> I'm all for the complexity democracies are messy mm -hmm. exactly democracies are complicated mm -hmm. 
democracies, um, uh, managing them is incredibly difficult. We are seeing the deep disappointments in democracy, the feelings that liberal democracy is failing us. We're seeing that all over. I think that liberal democracies have not addressed the fears that people have of loss, the fears that they have that their world is turning upside down. Um, I, I think it's, it's complicated. And I would only say you, as you are in the work that you're doing, you are a voice mm -hmm. in this conversation. But you're also judgmental as to sure. whose voice should be heard and what you should really be saying. So the, the only alternative I can come up with is a robust, free, open dialogues. Exactly. And, and yes, but, and that's the reason why I'm saying in some sense, the right is more dangerous than the left. The left is doing messy stuff, like trying to stop somebody from speaking at the university, attacking professors who don't say what you want. I, I get that. But that the right is doing something else. The right is actually undermining the very institutions of democracy. They are assault. When, when Trump said that the press is the enemy of the people, that was actually the language of Hitler. That was the language of Goebbels in no. Germany. When the president tries to use the Justice Department to vindictively assault his enemies, that's now the you know, they've now released the papers from Nixon who did that. And of course we know that Trump did that. When, when you use the power of the federal government to, under, to, to attack the governors and, and citizens of states, enforcing them, you know, de depriving them, you know, of their rights, that's different than, than demonstrating against a speaker. That's actually undermining the very institutions of democracy. And we are only as strong as our institutions. Individuals can say what they want, but when the institutions themselves are damaged, and that, that goes to our courts as well, because under President Trump, he demonized our courts. <laughs> and and um, now- and the, for the constitution first, to an extent. Yeah, so for now, now, for the first time, the Supreme Court of the United States is viewed as fair by under 50% of the American population. That is a serious diminution of kind of civic, in, civics of civility and of, of a sense of democratic process. If I can't trust the Supreme Court to address in a fair constitutional method, address the central issues of our country, that is a deep, deep threat to me. And I think that we are, you know, we're looking, I think a Republican victory, where the way the Republican party is now in America, a Republican victory, just like, you know, the victory of, of uh, in France of Marine Le Pen or the victory of Orban in Hungary. I mean, I think these are endangering us because there are assaults on the very institutions of the country. And that's different. So the right and the left, we may not, we may see them as similar in terms of their critiques, but they're not similar in terms of their behavior. Mm -hmm. And we should all agree on democracy and liberal democracy and in that point. And that, that should, should be agreement and respecting, uh, both sides should respect it. I found something very, I found out something very interesting uh, just recently about the constitution that it might, the founding fathers might have been influenced by, by Indian tribes because uh, their, their structure of uh, the, the government, the federal government and the states was something that they had with five nations. And uh, some of these ideas of, of liberty and, 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 the, uh, and the freedom, equality and so on might have been influenced by them because it, this was before the French Revolution. So it, it's kind of a ripple effect. And that is fascinating. And it, it, it gives a very pluralistic view of things that the, uh, the, the natives might have influenced the constitution and the French Revolution and the rest of the world. Look, uh... I, I'm all for accepting myth-making. And my guess is that, pro look, you, when you read John Locke, mm -hmm. when you read David Hume, when, we, when you read the, 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 the British versus the continental political philosophers, 
you see pretty much that that the founders, Madison, Jefferson, Franklin, they, they were more likely directly influenced by the limitations that these that these thinkers saw on on government. In general, you 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 talked about the French Revolution, but the French Revolution was driven more by Rousseau's notion of the general will, of collective will, of the majority rule. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case in England, in the revolutions in England. In England, it was different. It was the limitations put on government and the, the uh, kind of deconstruction of the central authority of a king who had absolute power and control. So it, it may be there's a parallel there. Maybe they knew something and they liked it, but clearly the, 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 the founders of American democracy went on the presumption that local government, state government is actually more, it's closer to the people and the needs of the people in their constituency than the federal government can be. And the federal government can be more limited now, as somebody who, who supported aggressive federal action on issues like civil rights, human rights, given the system now, given the courts now, I've actually become a state's rightist. I may have to accept that being locked up in Mississippi is a horrendous perversion of justice. It is discriminatory against the poor, against minorities, but I can talk about justice reform in New York. I think undermining the rights of women in Tennessee and undermining their rights to protect their own bodies is horrible, but because I can't stop that, I need to make sure that in, in New Jersey or Connecticut, women have protected rights. I think being gay in Alabama, they just passed you know, this, this terrible legislation there telling parents what they can or can't do to their, with their own children, bringing up their children. I can't change that, but I can make sure that the rights of LGBTQ kids in California and Oregon are protected. And we may have to accept that, that we can do everything we can to try to state, change what happens in those states. But we also may have to accept that at least we need to protect and create positive models in the places that we can. It's a weird world. I never expected that as a progressive, I would be, I would be a states' rights activist, but that's where I am now. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think one of the misconceptions is also uh, reason. And when we talk about the age of reason and enlightenment and so on, there's this optimistic view that we are reasonable beings and we're not. I mean, I just finished The Civilization and Its Discontents by Sigmund Freud. And there's this aggression that is often not addressed. And it's, 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 it's a part of human nature, I think, that we do have that aggression, but we can channel it towards good, towards uh, um, things that are beneficial for humanity. But it's often not acknowledged and so when an act of violence happens we blame the person but it's like it's part of human nature and I think we have to take that into consideration when we're coming up with with plans and uh, uh, for improvement but it's it's again it's complicated it's complex I mean we have a long history that says human nature can be curtailed it can be domesticated so to speak uh, you may have read recently uh, this very strange work by Tucker Carlson about masculinity um, with lots of false evidence about male fertility and, and you know, masculine fragility as a result of policies. Um, look, we have, we have millennia of, of ways to try to create a healthier, more loving, nurturing society. I think you're right about human nature. We're made to defend ourselves and defend our families. Uh, infants at a very early age can distinguish an angry face, mm -hmm. right? So I understand that. And, and, you know, why do we put our right hand out to shake hands? Where's that custom from? 
It comes from your weapons. Yeah, no weapons, yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the presumption that I'm right-handed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, if I'm left-handed, you're a dead man because mm-hmm. I can pull out my left hand, right? So clearly we've tried to so to speak civilize ourselves. So I'm not prepared to buy the we're basically vicious animals. I think we've come a long way. And my experience in talking to those who with whom I really, really disagree politically is these are not evil people. They are people who I believe are misguided politically, but they're trying to work out their lives as well. And we have to find ways to be able to talk to each other. I've preached in very right-wing churches around the country. You know, here I'm a Jewish boy coming from New York University, a progressive university, but I can say something to them. I can say, I read the Bible in the original. (laughs) Oh, that's very exciting. And then I can show them texts to make the points that I want to make about about democracy and about pluralism. And I don't find people reacting with hostility. I find them reacting with interest and openness. So as much as I think we are in a very fraught period, that that the future of civilization is in balance, I also fundamentally believe in the goodness of people. I completely agree. I'm, I'm an optimist, and I think the really good things could come out of this. I found an interesting study where they looked at uh, um, being polite in the northern versus southern states. And so southern states score much higher on being polite, but they're also more aggressive, whereas northern states are like rude, but they're not as aggressive. So the, the, the idea of honor becomes important, a culture of honor, which is more pronounced in the south than in, in the north. And so that's where you see the aggression. So by being polite, it doesn't mean that you don't have aggression. I think that's the acknowledgement we need to make. And once we do that, we see ourselves more as human. And it's it's complex. Nobody's entirely good or entirely bad. And I, I, I see uh, there, are, there are right-wing people who are inherently good, but it's just like, you know, c- to connect with that, to find a way of, of tapping into that. And I think that is, again, the common denominator. We want the same thing with different religions. That's why I like interfaith. It's like, let's agree on about this, agree upon this point and find a consensus. So let me go back to something you said early, early on. I, I assume, you know, as we move to wrap this up, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let me go back to something you said early on. Mm-hmm. I want to distinguish between being a patriot okay. and being a nationalist, right? Being a nationalist presumes something higher in my nation, something God-given, something that allows me to say my nation is not only superior, but my nation is defines me. Nationalism promotes me to, to battle others, to belittle others. But patriotism can be a very positive thing. Oh, sure. Patriotism, well, you you said you you said in the beginning you weren't a patriot. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanna I wanna make a claim. Then you said, but I'm Canadian. And I love being Canadian. And I, I want to make I want to make that point mm-hmm. that I do not believe that that being democratic means you can't be a patriot. Yeah. But in the same way that I can say, I think my mother is the best mother in the world, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that you can't say the same thing. And that I can honor your saying that in the context. I don't know your mother, you know your mother, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing. I can love my nation and I can honor my nation and be grateful and say it's the best nation for me. At the same time, I have to respect and honor others saying the same thing. And that's the difference between patriotism and nationalism. We are in a period of national nationalist revival that is scary. And I wish we could promote democratic patriotism rather than populist nationalism. <laughs> Absolutely. But one thing that that bothers me is when people talk about I'm proud of my nation, and I understand it, but uh, being proud means you've done something, you know, you, you, you did something and just being born in a specific place does not automatically make you 
you know, deserving of that. I mean, I understand. I, I, I love, and I think love is really the, the word here, but I have an issue with pride. And that's, again, more personal. Um, pride is, is what it? I can do, what's in my hands, what I'm doing. I'm Vancouver, proud of my podcast. <laughs> Vancouver is Vancouver Canucks. Is that the team? Yeah, I'm not proud of them. <laughs> well, but a lot of people are. Yes. A lot of people have vicarious pleasure and joy yes. in them, right? They feel amplified in their lives when they're successful, yeah. yeah. right? I don't know that that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing when you start smashing people from the other side in the head, or when you start screaming racist or homophobic epithets at the people on the other side. But I think it's all right. There is a piece of us that does want to be part of a team. <laughs> um, uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about, about team building that way. You know, you you can be as an individual, you're competitive with others, mm -hmm. but if you're on a rowing team, you're part of a team. Mm -hmm. As he says, you're literally in the same boat mm -hmm. and you want your team to win. So I'm, I, I think I'm all right with the idea of team patriotism, of national patriotism, as long as it does, it's again, it's grounded in the principles of democracy. <laughs> and, and that means that, that, that means that if we're playing a game and my team loses, I respect the game. I respect the terms of the game. Yes, yes. And if I instead try to cheat in the game, I try to move the goal line, I try to handicap the other side, I throw a spitball, you know, I, I, that's, once you start cheating in the democratic game so that you can win no matter what, then it's no longer democracy. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've been seeing around the world is people doing exactly that. Certainly the best example is Trump's not accepting his defeat yes. and looking all the different ways that he looked to undermine the game. So uh, James Cars wrote a book about about game theory that way. And he said, democracy, liberal democracy is an infinite game. The goal is not to win any one, the goal is not to win permanently, it's to win one game. But the moment you win the game, you go to play the next game and you adhere to the rules, you follow the rules. So my team wins this time, it loses next time. My political party wins this time, it loses next time, but I play, I'll continue to play. He claims there are finite games and those games attempt to not only defeat the other side, but to end the game. And that's what dictatorships do. That's what, what authoritarian systems do. They wanna end the game. And I think that, that Trump is a prime example of that. Putin is a prime example of that. Willing to break the rules of the game so as to ensure a permanent victory. And it's against that we need to fight with everything we have to keep the game going. Yes, and at that point it's game over, but we haven't reached that yet and we wanna make sure we, we fight for it. Thank you so much, Professor David Alcott. It's been such a pleasure, so stimulating, thought-provoking. Thank you so much for being here. And so you're the top professor of practice in public service and leadership at the Wagner School at uh, NYU. And your book is entitled again, Faith, Nationalism and the Future of Liberal Democracy. Thank you so much for, for spending time with us here. Wonderful being with you. Keep going. Thank you.